Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Warren Grill, who is Professor of Bio- Biomedical Engineering at Duke University. His research interests are in neural engineering and neuromodulation, and include design and testing of electrodes and stimulation techniques, the electrical properties of tissues and cells, and computational neuroscience. Welcome, Warren. Thank you very much, Gil. Sure, yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with one of your uh, recent papers, in vivo quantification of excitation and kilohertz frequency block of the rat uh, vagus nerve. Uh, you say there's a growing interest in treating diseases by electrical stimulation and block of peripheral uh, autonomic nerves. Uh, but you say there's a paucity of studies in this area. So you have you have an experiment here in rats yeah, that's right. And it, it might be help, helpful to set a little bit of context about this concept of electrical stimulation and block yeah. before we get into the details of those particular experiments. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, yeah. The, the term that people have used, I think, that's, that's informative is the notion of what's called bioelectronic medicine. Mm. So rather than taking a pill, you deliver electricity to the nervous system. The nervous system normally communicates with a series of electrical impulses called action potentials. And you can, by application of small, very short pulses of current, produce action potentials. And those action potentials look and behave just like they would normally. So you can trick the nervous system into thinking that that activity was generated intrinsically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Similarly... Go ahead. I've always wondered, Warren, that, you know, most of the medications uh, we have is chemical, but the system, our system is an electromagnetic chemical system. Uh, and so the electromagnetic part, uh, I guess, uh, has, has gotten less attention, generally speaking, right? That's right. And, and the two converge at the end of the nerve cell where it releases a chemical called a neurotransmitter. And that neurotransmitter is a, is a chemical and it binds 
on the other cell, and that could be another nerve cell, it could be a muscle cell, uh, to a receptor. Hmm. And that's what causes the action in the second cell. So most drugs that you take bind to those receptors. Yeah. And what we're doing, you could almost think of it as selective drug delivery. So we're using the nervous system to cause release of those transmitters in an appropriate location mm. to affect those same receptors. One of the big differences with a pill or pharmacology is that we can do it locally. So you don't take a pill and affect the receptors throughout your body. Yeah. And we can do it with a high level of time precision. So you can turn the device on and off with, with millisecond or second level precision. And the toxicology aspects um, are less, less of an issue here. The body doesn't get, get rid of the, the chemical that you put into it. Well, there are risks associated with implantation of a device in your body, and there are risks associated with the delivery of electrical pulses that you need to, to generate those action potentials. But those are pretty well known, so we, we, we understand well what the limits are to do those things in a safe way. Right, right. And so, so this particular study then, um, so is this the, so, so the, so to talk a little bit about, uh, Warren, the mechanics of how you accomplish this in rats. Yeah, so we were interested in this particular study, not just in the generation of action potentials, but also the block of action potentials. So if there was ongoing activity in the nervous system that, was, that caused a problem, you want to stop that activity you can also apply electrical signals to block conduction in the nerve. And that's what we were most concerned with in this study. Yeah. So what we, we used a nerve called the vagus nerve, and vagus is similar to the word vagabond for wanderer. And the reason the vagus nerve is of, of such interest is that it goes to all of the organs in your chest and belly. And it carries motor signals down from the brain to those organs, and it carries sense signals back up to your brain to tell you about the, the, what's happening in those organs. So by stimulating or blocking that nerve, you could imagine that we could influence the function of virtually any organ in your chest and belly. Mm. Yeah, I, I remember reading, there was some speculation that the microbiome uh, uses the vagus nerve to actually uh, actually get what they want, um, send send signals up to the brain, and you know make behavior changes. Uh, I don't yeah. know what the status of that is. I think there are there are accumulating evidence that the vagus nerve is is sensitive to. There are fibers, you know, like in your ear, those that are sensitive to sound. There are fibers, nerve fibers in the vagus nerve that are sensitive to the microbiome in your gut. Mm. So in this experiment, we wanted to study this block. Can we effectively block transmission along this vagus nerve? So if there were abnormal activity, we could prevent it. Yeah. So in order to do that, we anesthetize an animal and we surgically expose that vagus nerve and put electrodes on it. So small pieces of wire inside of an insulating rubber tube that fits snugly around the nerve. And then we use one of those electrodes to generate activity, to produce action potentials. We use a second electrode to record those action potentials so we know what the activity is in the nerve. And in the middle, we apply a signal that 
we hypothesized could block the activity that we had generated with the first electrode. So, so the, the frequency and the and the voltages. Uh, I, I don't know what the what the parameters are. Are are they known, or you need to do some sort of titration around that? So for the process of generation of action potentials, what we typically call stimulation, those parameters are very well understood. However, in the case of producing block, those parameters are not well understood. And one of the things we did in this study was alter those parameters, the frequency or cycles per second of the signal, as well as its intensity, which you could measure in volts or in uh, milliamps. And... In order to produce block, you need to apply very high frequency signals. So these signals are 10,000 cycles per second or 10 kilohertz and above. Uh, And these are well above the rate at which action potentials would normally be traveling in a nerve. They might go at, at 10 pulses per second in this nerve. And by delivering these very, very fast signals, we found that we could block conduction of those action potentials. Okay, so, um, and, and so the the electrodes are are in the body, um, you are activating or, 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 um, or sending some signals to it. And there, there is a, I guess the response that you're trying to get is, is fairly tactical. I mean, you would get sort of an instantaneous response to it, right? Right. These are the, the, the onset is more or less instantaneous for these signals. Yeah, yeah. And so this particular study, what, what's the subjective uh, for the study? So really, it, if we use the analogy of the, of the pill... One of the important things you need to know about a pill is the dose that you should give the, the individual to have a particular effect. We wanted to know what is the dose that's required to block transmission of neural signals along the vagus nerve, both in terms of the frequency of the signal as well as the amplitude of the signal that you need to apply to block that transmission. So, so the mechanism of blocking, Warren, is it because you are sending, I don't know, noise is the right term, but you're sort of uh, taking away the the ability of the typical signal to travel uh, by, by, by providing noise to it? Or what's the mechanism by which you block it? Yeah, so it, an action potential travels down the nerve and that occurs as a result of sodium flowing from outside of the nerve fiber to the inside of the nerve fiber. So sodium ions, they're the primary player for nerve signal transmission. When you apply these very high frequency signals, it causes what's called inactivation of the sodium channel. In other words, it closes the lid on that channel. So now the sodium ions can no longer enter the nerve fiber. So the action potential is traveling along and all of a sudden it it encounters a region of the nerve where the lid is closed and that prevents it from from, uh, traveling any further down the nerve. And and the high frequency is needed for that to happen? Correct. If you use lower frequencies, Gil, what you tend to do is to produce action potentials. 
where you're opening and closing that lid rapidly, producing actual potentials. When you go, when you go very fast into these kilohertz regimes, 10,000 10, cycles per second, then you simply close the lid. It never opens. Okay, okay. You had um, another paper, Warren, this is from 2018, and you're looking at, again, a rat study about, um, again, using stimulation to increase bladder capacity. You want to talk a bit about that paper? Yeah, so, so that study was where the, the study we just discussed about the vagus nerve was, was really kind of a fundamental study. What are the parameters or the dose that you need to achieve a certain effect? This was much more of an applied study. Can we, by artificially generating action potentials, by the delivery of electrical stimulation to a particular nerve, in this case, a nerve called the pudendal nerve that innervates the skin and, of your pelvis and the genital organs, increase bladder capacity. Or clinically, this could be used to treat a condition called overactive bladder or urinary incontinence. And the idea for this was inspired by an evolu by a little bit by evolution, Gil. So we have in us a reflex that inhibits the bladder during sexual activity. And that reflex is generated by sensory fibers that are in the penis of the male or the clitoris in the female. And when those fibers are stimulated mechanically, that inhibits the yeah. bladder. So we said, well, if this works by mechanically stimulating those nerve fibers, could we electrically stimulate them and also inhibit the bladder from contracting, making its capacity larger and preventing incontinence? So again, the, in, in this experiment, we anesthetize the animal. We place an electrode very similar to what we used on the vagus nerve around the pudendal nerve. And we deliver electrical stimulation to that nerve as we're slowly filling the bladder. So we have control. We, we disconnect the kidneys. And we measure how much fluid can the bladder hold before the animal spontaneously uh, uh, urinates. Right. And what we observed were substantial and profound increases in bladder capacity as a result of electrical stimulation, mm -hmm. consistent, with what, consistent with our hypothesis that if we activated this reflex that had you know, developed by evolution, that we could potentially treat incontinence. This inspired something. Uh, well, one of our observations was that you could actually do this too well. That is, if you stimulated the nerve with the appropriate parameters, you could get a large increase in capacity, so treating incontinence mm. effectively, but then the animal could not void well. That is, they couldn't do a good job subsequently emptying mm. their bladder. They were in a condition called urinary retention. And this inspired an ongoing study in our laboratory where we are exploring the idea of state-dependent stimulation of this same nerve. Mm -hmm. So you would give one dose of electrical stimulation while the bladder is filling to increase capacity, treat incontinence, and then at an appropriate time and place determined by the user of the device, you would switch over the parameters or the dose to one that activated the bladder 
and enabled it to empty efficiently. So, so the practical implications of this, Warren, uh, this, you know, this sounds fairly invasive. So I'm, you know, thinking about uh, humans. Um, yeah. Do we see practical applications uh, in humans? Absolutely. So the, the there are existing devices that use electrical stimulation for therapy. The one that probably most people are most familiar with is, of course, the cardiac pacemaker. But you could think about a device very similar to that, a nervous system pacemaker. And these are already in, in clinical use. So, for example, there is a device called the cochlear implant, and that stimulates the auditory nerve, and it restores the sensation of hearing to individuals who are otherwise deaf. There's a device that uh, stimulates the spinal cord, again, implanted nervous system pacemaker, and that's used to treat chronic pain. So there are good examples out there being used clinically of devices that are safe and effective. And we could imagine taking a similar technology and surgically implanting it to stimulate the pudendal nerve to treat bladder dysfunction. Right. So, so do we have some sense of sort of the long-term uh, effects of this? Um, in other words, you know, in, in some sense, you are uh, taking a system that is not used to this this sort of um, uh, intensive um, treatment. Uh, and, and you're cycling through it uh, as, you know, uh, the way that you describe the bladder capacity problem. Uh, what do we know about the long-term effects if something like that were to be done in humans? Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent point, Gil. And, and I, I think there are two ways to think about the long-term effects. One is what are the risks associated with long-term electrical stimulation? Can, can, could you, for example, damage the nerve by yeah. stimulating it? And there, are, there have been, fortunately for us, a, a large number of preclinical studies conducted in experimental animals to establish what are the limits? How much can you stimulate a nerve bef- before you start mm-hmm. to damage it? So we have a pretty good understanding how to do this without, without damaging the nerve. Right. The second concern is something that's referred to as tachyphylaxis. That is, you you deliver the therapy, but it doesn't, but it loses effect mm. over time. So imagine you're you're taking a drug and, and and you take it for a year, and by the end of that year, it's it's no longer as effective as it was when you first started taking the drug. The same thing but could potentially happen with electrical yeah. stimulation, although we we don't really have good examples of that yet, fortunately. <laughs> But then there's a piece of this that I think actually is an opportunity. The nervous system, as we all know, has the capacity to learn. It's referred to as plasticity, right? That the strength of connections between nerve cells can be changed by the activity in those nerve cells. Mm -hmm. Since we, with electrical stimulation, can control the activity in nerve cells, we have the potential to control that plasticity or cause, quote, learning in the nervous system. So the other way to think about long-term effects, and this is a hypothesis, is that we could reprogram the function of the nervous system 
so that the pathophysiology that's causing, for example, urinary incontinence gets reversed by the delivery of stimulation. And then you can turn the device off and get sustained long-term benefit. Mm. Maybe you need a tune-up once a year where you turn the device back on, but the idea is that you have changed the nervous system through the activity that you created with the stimulator. Right, right. And in the long run, I would uh, Warren, I don't know if it's already in play, uh, you could apply some AI techniques to this. So you could, you could have the embedded device uh, really learn and optimize over time as well, right? That's, that's very true, Gil. And, and the third paper that we'll talk about hints at this idea of uh, potentially closed loop control. Yeah where you're sensing something in the body, let, let's say, for example, bladder pressure, and you're adapting the stimulation in response to that, whatever it is that you're sensing. Yeah, yeah. This is, you know, uh, really exciting, really exciting area because in some sense, it gives us an alternative to conventional therapies, right? Um, if you're not finding success with conventional therapies, this this provides an alternative. But you know, once we once we uh, get this into a into a next stage, it might even become the primary mode of intervention. Um, so I want to go into the, the the next paper you mentioned. So this is again a very recent paper. Evoked potentials reveal neural circuits uh, engaged by human deep brain stimulation. Now, what exactly is deep brain stimulation? Yeah, so, so deep brain stimulation or, or DBS is a brain pacemaker. So this is an implanted device analogous to a cardiac pacemaker, except the electrode is placed in a region of the brain called the basal ganglia. And the basal ganglia are involved in the control of a number of things, including yeah. movement. And deep brain stimulation is used clinically now in hundreds of thousands of people worldwide to treat a condition called essential tremor. So people that have severe tremor, particularly of the limbs, and one that most people are familiar with, Parkinson's disease. And it's very effective at treating the motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease, but not the other symptoms of the disease. Right. So one of the challenges of, of deep brain stimulation is that it's unclear how to set the dose in any particular patient. It requires a high level of expertise, and it requires that the individual come back to see their healthcare provider multiple times to get that dose set correctly, the, the stimulation yeah. parameters. And the appropriate dose can change over time. So most individuals with Parkinson's disease that are receiving deep brain stimulation continue to take their medication at a reduced dose, but they continue to take medication. And so that medication concentration in their brain varies during the course of the day. So the amount of stimulation that they need might vary during the course of the day. Similarly, if they go from sleeping to walking in the park to sitting in their chair reading a book, the amount of stimulation that they need right. might change. Right. 
So this inspires this concept of closed loop stimulation. That is you sense something inside the body and you use that sensed signal to in real time change the dose or alter the stimulation parameters so that they are appropriate for whatever the needs of the individual right, are right. at that time. Sort of fine tune it. So Exactly. But it's not obvious uh, what that sensed signal should be. So in this study, what we recorded is called the evoked potential. So when you imagine a timpani, a kettle drum, and you strike that drum with a mallet and it makes a, re a reverberating sound. You could think about that sound as being evoked by the stroke of the mallet onto the head of the drum. Yeah. When you, when you deliver a pulse of current into the brain with deep brain stimulation, that creates a response termed the evoked potential, which is analogous to that reverberating drum. So you, you, you strike, you figuratively strike the neurons with the electrical stimulus and they respond with action potentials. You can record that evoked potential, just like we can listen to the sound of the yeah. kettle drum. And we're trying to understand, could we use that evoked potential as a feedback signal to fine-tune mm. stimulation? So, so, so there are a lot of different areas here, Warren, right? So, so Parkinson's, obviously, you're looking at the, the, the movement-related things. Uh, but more broadly, this gives us, or let me ask you the question, does it give us an opportunity to think about uh, other diseases like depression and, and those types of things? Yes. So I think with respect to deep brain stimulation, there have been a number of clinical studies using deep brain stimulation to treat mm -hmm. intractable depression. There were two uh, clinical large randomized clinical trials conducted in the United States. Uh, both of those trials unfortunately mm -hmm. failed. So they neither, neither of them met their predefined endpoint to show that the yeah. device worked. However, in one of those cases, we now understand very well why it failed. And it had to do with uh, real estate. So there's, there are three rules in real estate, location, location, location. The same thing is true when you put an electrode into the brain. Location, location, location. And in you, you must be in the correct location to have the intended effect of stimulation. And in that failed trial of brain stimulation for depression, if you, do, if you look at a subset of the patients in whom the electrode was correctly positioned, the results are quite promising and dramatic. In contrast to the modest or lack of benefit in the individuals where the electrode was not correctly positioned. Uh, are there any any sort of non-invasive modalities, Warren? You know, brain is obviously a well-protected organ. Uh, it's really difficult to get into it. Um, so, so do we have ways to um, perhaps using using magnetic 
uh, aspects or something else to non-invasively do something? There are a couple of non-invasive approaches yeah. to brain stimulation. One is called transcranial mm -hmm. magnetic stimulation. And if you put a coil outside of the skull and pass a very large current through that coil, for those of you who remember your physics, that generates a magnetic field. That magnetic field, your, your body is permeable to magnetic field. So that magnetic field goes into the brain. It induces a current within the brain and that current can stimulate neurons. So that could potentially be used for uh, therapy. And in fact, it is used to treat yeah. uh, depression. The effect sizes, that is how much does it alter the symptoms of depression are clear, but they're not nearly as pronounced as what you can achieve with an implanted mm. brain stimulator. So it has an effect, but it's right, a more right. modest effect. And, and how about um, other CNS diseases, um, not just magnetic uh, ways to uh, affect it, but really DBS? Uh, has it shown to be effective in other CNS diseases? So the, the three uh, places where DBS has been proven effective are Parkinson's disease, essential tremor, uh, and dystonia, which is another uh, yeah. another movement disorder. Um, there are also some clinical success, although the depth of clinical data is not what it is in these movement disorders for a psychiatric condition called obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, and it's, it's certainly used to treat that. It's just the depth of clinical support is, is not uh, as strong as it is for the others. And there are a number of ongoing studies, some large, some small, uh, ranging from addiction to Alzheimer's, uh, treating Alzheimer's disease with deep brain stimulation. So I think we're likely to see over the course of the next years uh, additional indications where deep brain stimulation is effective. Any uh, sort of combination approaches to this, Warren, um, you know, chemical and this type of approaches together? Yes. Yeah, so in the in the case of Parkinson's disease, as we discussed earlier, patients typically continue to take their part some at a lower dose, but they continue to take their mm. Parkinson's disease medications, and that augment you know, that that uh, uh, is synergistic, if you will, with the effects of deep brain stimulation. And I imagine, although I'm not certain, that the same is true for uh, individuals with depression. Mm. Um, Beyond that, I, I'm not aware of other instances where you have medication interacting yeah, yeah. with the stimulation. Yeah, like you say, you know, the the effectiveness of this is really dependent on location uh, and dose. And unlike chemicals, I guess figuring out the dose here is a bit more complicated, right? Um, there is the frequency, there is the 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 voltage. There may be other aspects to it, and so, 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 what's the what's the general thinking as as we find more and more use for these types of approaches? Um, is there a protocol that we are following, just like you know, running clinical trials and so on, uh, to, to to find optimum dose for this type of approach? Yeah, this is a, a really exciting area right now, Gil. 
uh, historically, the dose finding was done exclusively through experimentation yeah. and an empirical approach. That is, you you put the device in, whether it's in an animal or in a person, and you to slowly turn the knob on the stimulator and measure what happens as you change those parameters. This is very laborious for the experimenter or the clinician and the patient. Uh, and it doesn't guarantee that you're gonna end up with the right answer, right? You might miss what are the best combination yeah. of parameters or the best dose. This is now being supplanted uh, and we're doing a lot of work in this area by very high resolution computational models. So we can now build models of the responses of nerve fibers in, the, in peripheral nerves or neurons in the brain in response to different parameters or doses of electrical stimulation and understand how manipulating those parameters alters the response of the nerve cells. We can, if we use deep brain stimulation as, a, as an example, we can build models of specific patients, including the location of the electrode in that specific patient, and then provide a tool to the clinician where they can visualize what is the activation or the stimulation that occurs in the brain as they alter those parameters of stimulation without the patient even being in the room. So that when the patient comes in for their dose setting, they've already greatly refined what that dose should be through the use of these high resolution uh, computational models. So practicing, uh, sorry, so really so practicing personalized medicine that way. Absolutely. And, and I think this, this idea of personalized medicine through high resolution computational modeling gives you the initial dose. And then this feedback system that we described earlier, where you sense something in the body, whether it might be bladder pressure or this evoked potential we spoke about, and, and alter those parameters to fine tune them to the needs of the patient at any so, given time. So those parameters, Warren, are they really patient dependent? They are uh, certainly because the, the, the reason is that really, really twofold. One, depending on the, and again, well, let's use deep brain stimulation as an example. Depending on the precise positioning of that electrode within the brain, the intensity of stimulation that you need to activate the required volume of tissue can be different across individuals. And then similarly, the ongoing activity in the brain with which stimulation interacts is also different across individuals. And so that would result in different optimal doses for those, uh, for different individuals. And I think the same is probably true for most yeah, yeah. of the medications <laughs> right. that we take, right? We, we, we give, uh, you know, prescriptions to people with, with, uh, it's relatively crude if you think about it, right? Somebody who could walk in and, and be 120 yeah. pounds or 220 pounds and they get Yeah, the, it doesn't quite fit dose. with the business model of pharmaceutical companies for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so. Um, so going back to Parkinson's, so if you if you were to use DBS for Parkinson's, is that is that uh, an ongoing uh, therapy or is it a one time? So how does it work? 
Yeah, so the, the therapy is ongoing and it only is effective at relieving the symptoms when the device is turned on. And if you turn the device off, the symptoms come back. And there are a number of, I encourage your listeners to, to go on the internet and you can search for videos that show this in real time, very, very powerful videos as users of deep brain stimulation turn it on and off. There is one intriguing uh, yet early exception to that. So historically, deep brain stimulation has been thought of as a last therapy of last resort because you have to drill holes in someone's head to put it in. Uh, so it's, you know, pe people generally would prefer to take a pill. So when they've exhausted the benefits from taking medication, then they would become eligible for deep brain stimulation. However, there are some now some ongoing studies of early intervention that is starting deep brain stimulation shortly after diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. And it's early yet. But some of those data suggest that deep brain stimulation may actually slow the progression of the disease. And whether this is a result of the stimulation itself or the reduction in medication that can be accomplished when you also have brain stimulation is still unclear. But that to me is, is, is really exciting because now, now you have a, ther a therapy that's treating the symptoms but it's also altering the course of the disease. So, so I'm, I'm just thinking, so um, in Parkinson's, uh, when you turn it on, you have good effect. When you turn it off, the symptoms return. Um, going back to the bladder capacity study, Warren, if I understood that correctly, you could effect a permanent change through, through, through blocking or stimulation in that case, right? The, in, in that study, the effects were temporary. So if, if, you, if we applied stimulation to yeah. increase the bladder capacity, let's say from one under, with no stimulation to two with stimulation, that effect would last only during the next, say, two or three times you filled the bladder. So the, 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 the time after might be 1.8, then 1.6, then 1.2, and then back to one. So it had a, had a short-term carryover effect only. It didn't produce any, any uh, long-term impact on the bladder capacity. Is it possible to have, I'm thinking, you know, could there be some sort of hysteresis or something that you can take advantage of by cycling through, uh, again, that sodium channel that you described uh, that gets capped? by high frequency, those to cycle that many, many times, would you, would you potentially get some permanent effects? We don't think there's a way to cause permanent effects on the sodium channel, but we, but we know that there are ways to cause permanent changes at the synapses as these, con yeah. these connections between nerve cells to make those synapses stronger or to make them weaker. And so I think if we want to have therapies that have lasting or you know, permanent or long lasting effects on symptom, the place we need to look is at that synapse and understand how do we deliver an appropriate pattern of artificial action potentials through stimulation 
to drive those synaptic connections in such a way that we have revert the nervous system back to how it was behaving before the person had or in case of alzheimer's um doing it in that fashion as well right some some sort of a cleansing effect yeah. in the brain potentially yeah the study in alzheimer's is is stimulating areas of the brain that are involved yeah. in uh memory recall and those data suggest that stimulation in some individuals can reduce the uh loss of memory recall that occurs in alzheimer's disease this is a really fascinating area warren so in conclusion um where is the where is the research heading what are you most excited about if you if you look forward 5 10 years um using these types of approaches you know we talked about um variety of areas already um there there we can see effects but where else do you think this will go one of the things that we're working on right now gil that i'm i'm really excited about is is a new dimension of stimulation parameter so we talked about the intensity of stimulation or the pulse repetition frequency of stimulation and we're looking at the temporal pattern of stimulation so an analogy would be morse code so in in in, in with, with conventional electrical stimulation in the in the the parlance of morse code you're just delivering dots dot 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 in invariant stimulation over time we are now designing patterns where the time between the pulses changes so dot dot dash dash dot dot dash dash dot over time and we think that this is probably the way the nervous system behave uh, communicates as well that it's not communicating with with fixed uh patterns and if we use uh deep brain stimulation for an example we have early data to show in human that by altering that pattern of stimulation we can more effectively treat the symptoms of parkinson's disease and we can do it with many fewer pulses per time than you would require with a conventional pattern of stimulation. Yeah. And I think this is I I think this is, you know, a harbinger of of what right. I'll what I'll call biomimicry. So as we better understand how the nervous system is controlling things that we take for granted every day when we're healthy, we can then do a better job at with therapeutic approaches by mimicking that control as it would occur yeah i'm i'm just thinking more and you know uh this is sort of uh putting on a patch right so 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 you you know uh 10 years 15 20 years from now the machine does a scan it finds all the all the stuff wrong with you and then it can actually create a patch for it and deliver it a custom patch Yeah and I I think that the, what what's very exciting about neural stimulation and block is that all organs of our body yeah are under control of the nervous system. So that means that the potential therapeutic approaches are boundless. Anything 
that is is going on we can potentially control with electricity and, and uh, you know uh, clearly um, there are applications and behavior modifications too you mentioned addiction um, you know obesity and things like that is is a big issue um, from a healthcare perspective so so do you see applications there as well Yes, and there have been some efforts uh, around uh, using yeah. electrical stimulation to treat obesity. And I think the, the recognition of those uh, studies, as well as other studies, is that this is a complex problem. It's unlikely to be solved with a singular intervention. And I think that electrical stimulation and block is probably going to be part, you know, if we're thinking about obesity, part of a whole behavioral change program that would be required for sustained right, right. Uh, weight loss. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Warren. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Yeah, and good luck. Thank with you, this Gil. This is uh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.